0: This recording has been produced by Christchurch, Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org.
1: So welcome, ladies and gentlemen, uh, friends, family. That's what we consider, all of you, to our uh, Wednesday night. Uh, Normally, this would be the Wednesday night Bible study, but tonight uh, is a very special day in the Jewish calendar, tonight officially starts Tisha B'Av. And our brothers and sisters in the Jewish community are about to begin their saddest day of their year. And they're going to be sitting down literally on the floor and they're going to be studying the book of Lamentations and discussing and, uh, and, and, and looking at uh, what occurred several thousand years ago and how that applies to today. What we will do is we will do the same thing, but we will also look at how Tisha B'Av, which is not uh, a, a festival that's in the Bible, we will uh, look at some of the uh, history behind it, uh, some of the theology behind it, some of the questions that are raised, as well as studying the Book of, of Lamentations, and, uh, and see how this impacts the New Testament. Because it does. So here we have a very interesting concept, something that uh, a festival that doesn't occur in the Bible per se, affecting and influencing what we do see in the New Testament. And that's what we will be looking at uh, at, at today. Normally at this time, we would be studying the book of Deuteronomy and we would be encountering... um, uh, Last messages of Moses as he prepares the people of Israel to enter into the land of Canaan as he is trying to set up a community that's going to be wholly just and good, a community that's going to be able to reflect the character of, of God. Uh, it's very interesting. Um, and we've, for those of us who have been studying it really really enjoying it, um, uh, I can't think of any, any other announcements per se other than uh, Neville, brother, would you be able to pray and lead us into a time with God?
2: Okay, yeah, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time set aside to gather around your word. And Father, for this special occasion, Lord, help us to see things in your word that we don't normally see. Lord, your word says there's a time to mourn and a time to dance. So Father, we pray that we will be able to enter in to what your spirit is wanting to teach us on this day, Lord. To feel the things that you feel, Lord, and to find the way through to repentance and into the, into the light of Your light, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So, by way of introduction,
1: today is Tisha B'Av. That's Hebrew for the ninth of Av in the Hebrew calendar, and this is an annual fast in Judaism, and on a day in which a number of tragedies are attributed and uh, I say attributed, to have occurred in Jewish history. Most importantly uh, is the destruction of the two temples uh, which occur in Jerusalem. Other terrible events that are said to have occurred on this day, and some of them can be proven, are, for example, the start of World War I in 1914 starts on this day, as does the expulsion of the Jews from Spain in 1492, and again from England previously in twelve ninety, And from the Bible, according to tradition, this is the day in which God uh, decrees that the people of Israel have to wander the desert for 40 years. You cannot enter the promised land. You must turn around and go back. That's a very sad day. And uh, again, traditionally, that this is the day in which Aaron, the high priest, the first high priest of God, uh, dies and is buried. Uh, in what is today present-day Jordan. Today is the darkest and saddest day in the Jewish year. And it is not a biblical festival as we know it. However, it is part of the calendar. And today the Book of Lamentations is traditionally read in synagogues while people literally sit on the floor. And there's a, a verse in Lamentations which we will read Is where they'll get that tradition. So they'll sit on the floor and they will spend the next 25 hours reflecting on how we, not I, we as a people have helped bring about all these events upon ourselves. We are not going to finger point, we're not going to cast the blame on anybody else. We will blame ourselves for this. That is almost countercultural to today, but that is what we'll be doing. It's a twenty-five hour fast, so uh, religious Jews and the observant Jews uh, will abstain from food, water, intimacy, pleasure, and beauty. They will not put on makeup. They will not wear good clothing. They will uh, not uh, you know, uh, engage in pleasant conversation with their friends, uh, and uh, in the Mishnah, which is an early Jewish commentary that describes that the reason for this fast is to confess our sins, to analyze our deeds, and to improve our ways. Now, this is different from Yom Kippur, which is a fast in the Bible. And in the Yom Kippur, you reflect on individual sins, about what you personally have done, and you focus on your relationship one with uh, another in the community. <laughs> Tisha B'Av is a, is a day that focuses on the nation, and focuses on uh, how we as a community have done and done wrong. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at uh, the nature of the temple, we're going to look at uh, the nature of um, uh, repentance, the nature of prayer, uh, and see, And then we're going to go through some of the biblical passages that relate to this uh, destruction uh, in the historical books of the Bible, and then we're going to read parts of Lamentations. Obviously, not all of it, but sections of it, and reflect on uh, some of the intentions that are there. And in a, in a very, very real way, um, we are going to be connecting with our brothers and sisters who are who are mourning the destruction and examining themselves uh, this very night. And I think that's a very good thing. We, as uh, many people in, in in the church, often think hang on, this isn't in the Bible, so why are we doing it? What possible uh, uh, meaning has Tisha B'Av for me? And I think those are good questions, and, and we, should, we should ask them. Uh, and I'm going to suggest that there are things that we can learn. There are things that we might not uh, appreciate as much per se, but there are definitely things we can learn and apply to our community. For Jesus himself, our master, the Messiah, had a very high appreciation of the temple, which means that uh, that we don't uh, we don't think about Tisha B'Av because modern Jews do. We don't think about the temple because modern Jews appreciate the temple. We think about the temple because the Messiah, did. and uh, and as followers of the Messiah, we should uh, think about. Um, and, and appreciate the day for what for what he did. Okay, so let's start with a discussion on the temple, because that's what uh, apparently gets destroyed in, in, in this time. What is the temple? The temple of God, built by King Solomon, the wisest of men, and it's built in Jerusalem, the city of God, which is chosen by divine choice in the book of Deuteronomy, which we've been studying, to be the place where God is going to put his name. Now, this special spot on the planet is a place where heaven and earth meet. And if we are completely honest, without the temple, Jerusalem is just going to have been another provincial town far removed from the politics of the world. No one would have thought about this place. But because of the temple, then Jerusalem has indeed become the center of the universe. And it's interesting that the very nature of a temple, the very, as soon as you put a temple in Jerusalem, it creates a paradox. What is the paradox? I hear you ask. Excellent question. Par- paradox is this. On one hand, God is everywhere. Yes? Yes. God is everywhere. But on the other hand, God's very real presence is also in the temple. And so the temple itself, which is ordained by God, creates a paradox. And in in the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, Jewish thought loves to thrive in paradoxes, loves to exist in tension, loves to just uh, contemplate what seems to be uncontemplatable. God exists everywhere, yes, but God is also present in his temple. And the temple, uh, I heard uh, uh, Mr. Pelegi describe it this way a couple of weeks ago when I was on the Temple Mountain uh, with him. He he described the the Temple Mountain, the temple, like a router, like a modern-day router. This is where heaven and earth met. This is where the presence of God was 100% felt. But at the same time, like a router, it was spreading the presence of God to all points of the earth. And that that made the temple something incredibly special. Now, Jerusalem is uh, undeniably the unrivaled center of Jewish life. Not only is it the capital uh, uh, of the country, but it's also the the center of, of the Bible. We look and pray towards Jerusalem. And the temple... That was the heart of Jerusalem. It's the only place, the Temple Mountain, the only place in Judaism that had and has an inherent sanctity. What is that? I hear you ask. Boy, you guys are asking some good questions. What does it mean to, 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 to be sacred? How do, you, how do you make a sacred place? Well, uh, what makes a place sacred? I guess the simple answer, God's Presence. Let's remember that when Moses had um, brought his uh, was wandering around the desert, uh, he encounters uh, a place, a burning bush on top of a mountain, while looking for a lamb. And then, what does God say? It says, "You take your sandals off, because you're standing on holy ground." Now, what made that ground holy? Was it some special type of sand? Uh, was it a special type of sheep? No. It was the presence of God. Now, once the presence of God was in that place, somehow that that, that, um, presence, that spirit, that shekinah, that light, that power had infused the ground, that this was now a holy place. And uh, and Moses had to remove his shoes. Now, with the presence of God in the Temple Mountain, that meant that there was a special, now a special sacred place on the earth. And uh, holiness... Like uncleanness. Now, I'm um, sorry, uncleanness. Uncleanliness seems to be something else. Okay, uncleanness. You haven't had a shower. Uncleanness, holiness, and uncleanness. Those are two concepts in the in Jewish tradition that can actually be transmitted from person to person and from thing to thing. So, if I'm unclean and I I touch you, then you become unclean too. You have to get yourself clean. Um, it's not a sin. It's a thing. No one's 100% sure what that thing is other than it's a thing. Um, it's always interesting to watch uh, people in Jerusalem. It, they're very nasty when they do this, but um, rather, rather not nice ladies will walk around Jerusalem and deliberately go up and try and touch Haredi men just before the Sabbath. Okay? And it's really nasty that they do that. Because they're trying to, they, they know that they're imparting unholiness. It's always funny to see these men running away from these uh, little ladies um, in, in ab, literally abject fear. Uncleanliness can be transmitted, but so can holiness. Holiness can actually be imparted to another person or another thing. And you actually can see this happening in, um, in the book of Acts, which we studied a couple of years ago where um, the apostles are, by the power of the Spirit, healing, praying, casting out demons, and their very sweat is infusing their headbands, and they take them off, and they send them to other cities, and, and, and people who touch them, who, have been, who, have been, who are sick, get healed. So somehow you can actually impart holiness. When you've walked into the temple, when you've visited the temple, Uh, to worship the Lord. You brought your offering. You brought your family. You engaged in a sacrifice. You engaged in prayer. You engaged in discussion in the the courtyards. You left Jerusalem not the same way you, you, you entered. You left Jerusalem with a little touch of heaven somehow. Moses himself, when he was standing before the Lord and walked away, his face radiated. The, the holiness of God so much so people couldn't couldn't stand it so holiness is infectious it's transmittable as is uh, uncleanness and so the temple itself had a very real effect on the planet so the presence of God sitting inside a, a, a temple having an incredible effect on the, on the planet The people of God coming to be with the Lord as he commanded man why would you ever wanna lose such a thing? And, uh, and that's what happens on, on this day, or what is attributed to happen um, on this day. So the Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av, um, is the day that we com- commemorate this, uh, this event. But is that the day that it actually happened? Well, that's a good question I hear you ask. Let's actually read some of the texts that occur now, I, before I begin, um, remember, your faith is not in your Bible. What's your faith in? The risen Messiah. One day, they might take all our Bibles away from us, but we will still be able to preach the risen Messiah because that is true. Um, and so when we study the Bible and we come to interesting tensions do not let that shake your faith because it should not. Your faith is in the risen Messiah, not in your Bible. The Bible is still the word of God, okay? So let's have a look. First, first verse, chapter we're going to look at is the, the des- description of the destruction of the temple in 2 Kings. Second Kings ch- chapter 25, okay. Uh, Three, three to nine is a little little bit that I'd like to read. Okay, so if you're following this in podcast land, Second Kings, right? The end uh, of sacred history, uh, chapter uh, chapter 25, verse three. By the ninth day of the fourth month, so we're in the fifth month. Fourth month. The famine in the city had become so severe there was no food for the people to eat. Jerusalem has been surrounded by the Babylonians and things are not looking good. And then the city wall was broken through and the whole army fled at night through the gate between the two walls near the king's garden. Though the Babylonians were surrounding the city and they fled toward the Arava, this is the desert, so the, uh, the Jewish fighters are attempting to run. But the Babylonian army pursued the king and they overtook him in the plains of Jericho. All his soldiers were separated from him and scattered. He was captured. He was taken to the king of Babylon in Riblah, where the sentence was pronounced on him. They killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and then they took out his eyes They bound him with bronze shackles and they took him to Babylon. On the seventh day of the fifth month, that's of, in the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the commander of the imperial guard and official of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He set fire to the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and all the houses of Jerusalem, every important building, He burned down. Okay, so that's the account of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 2 Kings. So what day does it say that Jerusalem was destroyed there? On the The 7th. Correct, the 7th of the 5th month. Okay, hang on. Um, I'm 100% sure that we celebrated on the 9th. What's going on? Well, we need another account. Let's have a look at Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 25. Next one. So Jeremiah, sorry, Jeremiah 52. 52, reading at uh, verse 12. So this is um, Jeremiah, who's an eyewitness. Not 100% sure who the author of Kings is, but um, Jeremiah is an eyewitness to this account. And he says, On the tenth day of the fifth month, On the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, commander of the imperial guard, who served the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. Very reminiscent of what's happening in 2 Kings. It almost uses the same Hebrew. He set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every important building he burnt down. The whole Babylonian army and commander of the imperial guard broke down all the walls around Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar, the commander of the guard, carried into exile some of the poorest people and those who remained in the city, along with the rest of the craftsmen, all those who deserted to the king of Babylon. But Nebuchadnezzar left behind the rest of the poorest people of the land to work the vineyards and the fields. So according to Jeremiah, who's an eyewitness, what day was the temple destroyed? The 10th, there we have an interesting piece of tension. The two dates that we actually have recorded in the Bible don't say nine. So what are we doing today? I hear you ask. Man, that's a good question. Joseph Flavius, everybody's heard of him, Jewish historian, who uh, wrote a um, uh, an account of the destruction of the Second Temple, it says that the Second Temple was destroyed on the 10th of Av. And uh, he records this in his book called Jewish War, chapter 6, line 250, for those that would like to look it up. So we have Josephus and Jeremiah linking the, the same day together. Jeremiah is linking first and second temples destroyed together. But Kings and Jeremiah are not agreeing. What happens? From a literary archaeology, does anyone understand the term literary archaeology? This is where um, you look at sacred texts and the text that we have, while I have a Bible and it's all written in the same colour ink on the same colour pages with nice little pictures and, and notes and things, seems to look like it's one text. But the real manuscript doesn't look anything like this at all. What I'm, what, if I was looking at the Bible in reality, I would see treasure troves, houses full of different manuscripts, different translations, uh, uh, different, different languages, um, all talking about the same thing. And uh, they're not always the same. And so literary archaeology looks at the differences and tries to figure out why some things are different are they copyist errors? are they different versions? Where are they getting their information from? And it appears that the, the ending of the last couple of chapters of Second Kings is corrupted in its transmission. that is, there are too many variations in literary archaeology. No one can be a hundred percent sure um, which, which, uh, which is the original earlier manuscript and which ones are later. So it seems, actually, the Jeremiah passage is more accurate and that, um, and that uh, Josephus Flavius is linking the 10th uh, the above, making sure the two temples are destroyed on the same day. Hang on, but we celebrate today on the ninth. What's going on, I hear you ask. Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. And this, now we get into... Um, the, in the rabbinics, the Mishnah, the way the Jewish people love to examine tension, and, and i got to tell you, Jewish people love it. Whenever there seems to be a problem in the Bible, what we might call a problem, that is never bad news for Jews. Okay? Jewish people are like, oh, great, good, now i really got to wrestle with it. And they do. And so we see in some early, early um, rabbinic texts, uh, one of them called uh, Seder Olam Rabbah, the uh, Order of the World, a uh, very early rabbinic text, looks at uh, Jewish history, and, um, and uh, in it, it says that uh, the two temples were destroyed okay, on the same day. Excellent. But not only that, they emphasize that not only was the day special, they emphasize that everything about that day was special. And here is a, a quote. So Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Yossi is a Galilean, who is uh, in, the, in the first century. He would say merit, you know, good deeds, and uh, the value of a good deed, merit is pushed off until the day of merit and reckoning to a day of reckoning. So it's not karma, okay? it, it, uh, but it, it, it likes to suggest that things occur on the same day and in the same pattern. For example... Eve, a virgin, eats the fruit, hears the word of God, disobeys, and eats fruit. Okay? So how do you fix the problem? You need another virgin to hear the word of God and obey, which is Mary. According to tradition, Eve eats the fruit on uh, Passover. Okay? When does the angel Gabriel, according to early Jewish tradition, encounter Mary, Passover? And so you see that the same focuses on same. So Merit is pushed off to a day of Merit, reckoning to a day of reckoning. When the first temple was destroyed, it was, it was the night after the Sabbath, and it was the year after a sabbatical year, and it was the service time of the yeho family, And it was the ninth of Av. The same is true of the second temple's destruction. It was a night after the Sabbath. It was a year after the sabbatical year. And the people serving in the temple were from the Jehoiach family. The point is here is that not only did the dates match, but even the day of the week, the place of the year in the seven-year cycle, and the same priestly family doing the service in the temple, everything matched. And this is a rabbinic way of talking. So they look at the two texts. One is seven, one is ten, and how do they match them? Believing that everything constantly, uh, uh, history repeats itself, that is, it, it occurs in the same way, same fashion, same time. The rabbis use a midrash to explain that the temple destruction took a period of four days, that is, the Gentile army initially encounter the temple, and they take over the temple, and they straight away begin feasting and drinking and, and taking wine and beginning to pull apart all of the treasures and, and all that sort of stuff. But the actual fire wasn't lit until the evening of the ninth, meaning the actual real flames got full bore on the tenth. That's their way of trying to do their midrash to come through uh, this discussion. Uh, And so the ninth of Av becomes the important day in the Jewish year. Now, okay, how early did this tradition occur? Well, we don't know. However, there is a hint, even within the Bible itself, that something was occurring on this day before the second temple. And you will read this in the prophet Zechariah. So if we turn to Zechariah, okay, Zechariah chapter 8. In Zechariah chapter 8, uh, verse 19. Actually, you may as well start at verse 18. The word of the Lord Almighty came to me, the prophet is speaking. This is what the Lord Almighty says. The fasts of the fourth, the fasts of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, the fast of the tenth month will become joyful and they will become glad occasions and they will become happy festivals for Judah. Therefore, love truth and love peace. If you go to commentaries, both Jewish and Christian, and uh, you get to this line, if anybody actually comments on this line, the the, the same answer is given. No one has a clue what fasts Zechariah is talking about. Now, Zechariah is a post-exilic prophet. That is, he's after the um, Babylonian return. So the temple has been destroyed. We've been in Babylon. We've had Ezra and Nehemiah. We've uh, begun to rebuild Zerubbabel's temple, not, not King Herod's yet. We've got something going on. And fasts have been added. Four fasts have been added to the calendar. But it does not say what they are. Uh, but, it, but one does occur on the fifth, in the fifth month. So there was something occurring in this month in the early second temple period and they were fasting in the morning or what were they fasting in the morning? There's not much to go on other than the destruction of the temple. And so something had occurred in Jewish history that required them to focus on, on this event. And so it's a pretty good suggestion that this would be the, uh, the fast or the feast, the fast of, um, of Tisha B'Av. But notice That, um, which is a sad occasion, but the hope is that there will one day be hope, joy, and a future, which you will also see in the book of Lamentations. But there is an interesting sentence at the end. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. So something about these fasts was anti-truth, and it was anti-peace. And the the intention was, brothers and sisters, we have to turn our hearts towards truth and peace because something happened where we didn't. And the result was terrible. And this begins to uh, to click into uh, tonight's topic, which is what our behavior does to the presence of God. And that is what our Jewish brothers and sisters are going to be contemplating tonight. And it is going to be part of the message of the New Testament and the Jesus movement. Uh, and also, just interestingly enough, is that um, the Ka'arite Jews, has anyone ever heard of the Ka'arite Jews? You no, know, have you heard of them? Yes. The Ka'arite Jews are, uh, they actually were a very large Jewish movement about, um, about a thousand years ago. There was still quite a large number of them. But... Um, these are Jewish people who did not accept um, the teachings of the rabbis. That is, I mean, a few of them, but not all of them. So they didn't accept um, the, the codified books of, of Talmud and Mishnah. They had their own sort of oral traditions, but they really focused on the text and, uh, and, and, and keeping true to the text. And so they looked at... at 2 Kings and Jeremiah, and they saw something occurring on the 7th and something on the 10th. And uh, so what was their conclusion? Better fast on both days. So Ka'arite Jews, to this day, fast. They have two fasts, one on the 7th and, and one on the 10th. And um, and they, so they, they read them in, in sort of parallel. What does the destruction of the 2nd Temple do for Judaism? This is a really big deal. Okay. The destruction of the temple decentralizes the religion. What's interesting is in the book of Deuteronomy, it focuses on a place. It says, don't make your sacrifices wherever you feel like it. Make sure you go to the place that I'm going to choose. But once the temple has been destroyed, now I encounter a theological shock. Uh, and, and, it, and it produces a paradigm shift in the Jewish people and in the way that they read essentially everything. Okay? So we need to re-examine the importance of sacrifice because now we actually can't make any of them. We need to re-examine the the, uh, the, the, the intention and, uh, and, and empowerment of prayer, seeing as how now I'm praying outside the land of Israel. Is that actually possible? Is it not? Um, I have to re-examine ha- what my behaviour did to actually bring about this, this event. And I re-examine the power of, of repentance. So by the time we return, and it's very short, 70 years is not a lot of time, really, in terms of what the grand scheme of things. But within 70 years, two generations, the Jewish people have had a complete rethink of their entire theology. Same texts. Texts haven't changed. But now we're having a hard look at, uh, at, the, at, at the, what Moses was trying to tell the people to write these the laws on your heart. And, and this ends up with what we see as uh, Judaism in the Second Temple period, the Judaism that is essentially the Judaism of Yeshua and Judaism uh, of Jesus. And so it's actually while the, the, temp, the, the Tisha of is not A uh, a fast in the Bible that is true but the event is actually very important to the way we interpret and understand Scripture okay so uh, any questions relating to our topic so far otherwise we will go into the book of um, book of uh, uh, Lamentations okay okay so Stephen Oh, no, that's a private one. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll get that one separately. Okay, so let's have a look at, uh, at the Book of Lamentations now.
0: Okay. Aaron, I did have a question real quick before you um, went on. But, you know, the whole, could you expand a little bit on that whole idea of, you know, God is everywhere, but also this temple? I know that's, that's, that he's establishing there's a correct way now to approach him. Okay, yeah. so,
1: that's a good question. So, uh, Yvonne from Brazil. Okay, the, the temple itself, once we had constructed a tabernacle or once we had constructed a temple, uh, we encountered a paradox. And the paradox is we understand that God's everywhere. He's in heaven, and Solomon says, you know, when he builds a temple, there's absolutely no way that the universe can contain you. So how do you fit inside a box? I mean, that's just me. And, uh... Um, um, so so, so how, do I, how, do I, how do I hold these things in tension? And that begins the, the sort of kind of understanding that, yes, God is on one hand in heaven, of course, and he sees everything. I get it. But at the same time, he turns around to Solomon and says, my eyes and my heart are always here. How can that possibly be? You see everything, yes, yes, but there's something special about this place. And that same idea, God is everywhere but God is in a special spot, fits into the theology which we see is in the New Covenant, okay? Where does the Holy Spirit dwell? Oh, He dwells in you. He dwells in me. He dwells in heaven. How is that possible? He woos the non-believer to himself. I mean, how is that possible? It's all, it just is. Um, so with the paradox fits. Um, and so, oh, there's a, <laughs> yeah, Bernardo. So is God in hell? Um, uh, that would be Sheol. So I'm going to go with a no. <laughs> and, uh, and, and and I've got a proof text for you on that one. In, in Revelation, we actually finally open hell, and only then do we throw in the devil and the false prophet. So technically, no one's in hell right now. There you go. That's a, that's a good one, Bernardo. Yeah, he's got in a long, long. He? Hell and Shoal are not the same place and not the same. Correct. Place. Okay. So, yes, that's correct. Sh- sh- uh, uh, show oh, the realm oh, of Shoal and hell are two different places. Hmm. And hell, unfortunately, over, over 2,000 years, they've become one place in our theology, but they are not. Um, Revelation's very clear. We, we open that up at the end, throw all the bad guys in. Okay. So wait, Aaron, go back to the
0: paradox. Go back to the
1: paradox. Uh, back to the paradox.
0: One <laughs> yeah. more shot at the paradox.
1: Go for it. What's that? Okay, so the paradox. Um, the, 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 the paradox it lives within the, even the way we think. I'm a sinner and a saint at the same time. I am born again at the same time I still suffer from the old man. The old man and the new man seem to live at exactly the same time. How does that work? Why is it that the old man just disappears and the new man is here and I and I never have to worry about sin again? I'm set free from sin, but he still hounds me all the time. I mean, it, 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 it's, it seems to be absolutely in every every facet of the way we think and, and breathe and breathe the Bible. And uh, for Jewish people in Jewish tension, they're happy to live with that. Um in, in, in Western uh, Greek thinking, we tend to not like we tend to try and separate all the boxes. Uh, my advice is no, just just live with the tension. But you see it in the very nature of the temple itself, um, and yet it's a, and so Jesus can say at the same time to the community of the household of faith, you are the temple. Wow, well, does that work? I mean, I'm not physically a building, but I am. Uh, I'm, 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 I physically got the spirit of the Messiah in me, but at the same time he's, he's, he's somewhere else. Um, okay. So, looking at the book of Lamentations, which in Hebrew is called <laughs> which literally Hello, Aaron, yes, brother from Nigeria. Yeah.
3: Yes, yeah. Thank you, Aaron. Before we just move into Lamentations, um, you, you did mention that um, the death of the first um, high priest, as Aaron, happened on the um, ninth of Av, yeah. Uh, but we have it recorded in Numbers thirty-three that it was the first of Av. Yes. And um, yeah, I just want to know if it's the same um, kind of conclusion that we have exactly. in the exactly things that, that Jeremiah. Yeah. Yep.
1: Yep. What they do is they they look at various things that occur in the Bible and they go, Oh my gosh, I know what it says, but let's move it here because this is really important. And it is true that a a large number of nasty things have occurred on the same day. And so even despite whether we we may not 100% know when the temples were destroyed, other than in the last couple of days so many things have occurred against the Jewish people, um, and so it be, this becomes the day, the focus point, just like the temple. is a focus point for the presence of God to go out. So this day is a focus point for all the, the things that have happened. But how did our behavior affect it? And that's the key that comes to the, to the, to, to the New Testament. And you'll see it, right. uh, hopefully, in, this, in, in uh, Eicha. So Eicha, the Book of Lamentations. Okay, Eicha, which is named after the first uh, word of the Bible. Eicha literally means how. So we've got a book called How. Okay. Lamentations is the name given in the scroll in the Septuagint. What is the Septuagint, I hear you ask? That's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. Now, there are several different versions of Septuagint. They're not all the same. Okay, there are five laments or poems that are in this book. Four of them are acrostic, that is, uh, they contain 22 verses, and each verse starts with uh, a letter of the alphabet. So it goes Aleph, Beg, Yimud, Aleph, And uh, so if you have a look at Lamentations, uh, four of the chapters have 22 verses. If there are 22 letters in the Bible. But one chapter, chapter 3, the third poem, each letter, Aleph, has three sentences. So there are three Aleph sentences followed by three Bet sentences followed by three Gimel sentences. So the first word of each sentence starts with that letter. And uh, that means that that that, that chapter has 66 verses. Now, there is a similar style in the Bible already, Uh, a book that does this. And anyone know what that book is? It's the Psalms. And so this book seems to have a very priestly feel to it it's very similar to what's occurring in the prayer book of the jewish people um, so it's probably written by someone in the priestly class now it, this book is attributed to jeremiah however there is no the book doesn't say jeremiah the prophet wrote it um, it does in greek so if you actually have a look at septuagint doesn't matter which version of Septuagint, and there are, are a few, maybe whether it's the um, uh, Roman one or the Alexandrian one, um, they all start by saying, um, and it came to pass after Israel had been carried away into captivity and that Jerusalem had become desolate that Jeremiah sat weeping and he lamented with this lamentation over Jerusalem. And he said, and so... The, uh, in, the book of verse, in, in the Septuagint, the, the book of Lamentations comes immediately after Jeremiah and just before a book called Baruch, which is not in our Bibles but is in everybody else's Bible. Um, in the Hebrew Bible, it comes in the, in, the, in the writings. But in the older Hebrew manuscript, it was, it was very early attributed to Jeremiah. He is a member of the pri- priestly ca- class. He comes from a family called uh, Hilkiah. Uh, He was told by the Lord not to marry and have children because of the coming and destruction that was going to face Jerusalem, which is not what priests were normally to do. They were normally meant to uh, fulfil the commandment to be fruitful and to multiply, but he was not. Um, And 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 all ancient sources attribute the book uh, to him. So there you go. So we will follow their tradition, may as well. And so the book starts... How deserted lies the city which was once so full of people. Now, our Jewish brothers and sisters are sitting on the floor right now reading this. And they're, they're contemplating that the city that was deserted, so full of people, she is now like a widow who once was great amongst the nations. She who was a queen among the provinces has now become a slave. And so the, uh, the the lament begins, and we begin to contemplate um, the absence of people in the city, the absence of of government, the absence of laughter, the absence of joy, the absence of worship, and the absence of the most important part that made Jerusalem Jerusalem temple. Uh, in verse, uh, uh, what have I got five? Let's have a look. Her foes have become her masters. Her enemies are at ease. The Lord has brought her grief because of her many sins. Her children have gone into exile, captives before the foe. So Jeremiah understands that the reason for this catastrophe, the reason for this disaster what he's viewing, um, is not the normal process of history. This is not just simple fate the typical history of empires is that they rise and then they fall nothing seems to last forever but there was something very special that caused Jerusalem to fall and straight away at the beginning in verse 5 what is it it was our sin The, uh, the Lord has brought her grief Has brought Jerusalem grief because of Jerusalem's sins. Okay? In verse, uh, let's have a look at 9. Her filthiness clings to her skirts. She did not consider her future. Her fall was astounding, and there was none to comfort her. Look, Lord, upon my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. Okay? So in verses 1 to 9. Uh, We get a contrast of happy Jerusalem, prosperous Jerusalem to lonely Jerusalem, empty Jerusalem. The roads that once teemed with pilgrims that were coming up to celebrate the festivals were now empty and devoid of people. No one was walking uh, along them. Um, A city that was once great and free was now slave. Friends have become enemies. Um, And whose fault was it? It was Hours, And in verse 9 and in verse 11, he says, Look, Lord, look upon my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. In verse 11, look, Lord, and consider, for I am despised. The, uh, this is an interesting way that, um, that, that the prophet, priest, talks to God. Seems very comfortable with able to speak to God with his raw emotion. Something we don't find as easy to do in our prayer life, but it's okay that when we do have a raw emotion and things do hurt and we don't understand the situation, I think we have enough examples within the text of the Bible to be able just to tell God like it is. And that's what the prophet does. He says, look, Lord, look at what's happening. He deliberately talks to God. The language changes. That's not insulting to the Lord. That's not even being disrespectful. He's just honestly talking, honestly from his heart. And um, and I think in, in our modern example, there are times when things occur in our lives, um, death of loved ones, death of children, okay, uh, don't understand what's going on in the world, lose a job, uh, our, our houses burn down, uh, we've got a plague affecting the world, and I don't understand. Is God not in control? And it's okay to turn around to the Lord and say, look, I just don't get what you're doing. And, and God goes, yeah, I get it. I get you don't understand what I'm doing. Keep talking to me because the nature of prayer, and Jewish people will have to think about what is the nature of prayer in captivity, Talk about that in a minute but uh but that's the nature of prayer prayer is both talking and listening okay? and sometimes probably should be more listening than talking but it's okay to tell god what you think just as habakkuk says be prepared for our rebuke. so here is our prophet and he says look lord do you not see what has happened our enemies have come and snatched everything even though he's already admitted uh, we kind of brought this upon ourselves, so in um, in chapter two, in the second dirge, we get uh, 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 a metaphor that's that's very familiar with the Jewish people let's have a look at the first couple of verses of chapter two: how the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with the cloud of his anger. He has hurled down the splendor of Israel from heaven to earth. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. Without pity, the Lord has swallowed up all the dwellings of Jacob. In his wrath, he has torn down the strongholds of the daughter Judah. He has brought down her kingdom and its princes down to the ground in dishonor. Okay, so what metaphor do we see being used in here? Metaphor of the cloud. Now, if we said the cloud uh, and God, God cloud, what's the first thing you jump to? What's the first clouds we get uh, that are connected to the Lord? Mount Sinai. There you go. The the cloud is God's presence, wraps him when he comes down. So we've got him visiting. the, the cloud in Mount Sinai. What went before the children of Israel in the desert? There was a cloud. Once we actually build a tabernacle and we actually have God in, in, in our midst, what seems to be part of that? Okay? It's this cloud. So the cloud is God's presence in the tabernacle and it's also God's presence in the temple. Now, what does Ezekiel in chapter 16, what does he see in part of his vision? He sees that the cloud of the glory actually leaves the temple. So all the previous references to the presence of God have been cloud, have been majesty, have been guiding, have been been wonderful. Now what is the metaphor? What's the adjective that's attached to the metaphor? The cloud? How the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with the cloud of anger. Right? It's uh, very different. The, the present, God had, his, had two parts to his personality and more than that, but, but there's one side where he is loved. There's also the other side, the consumed fire. So the metaphor now is that God's cloud, God's presence. angry. What did we do to flip that around? So when we're sitting in captivity, we've got some deep thinking to think about. Chapter, of, chapter 2, verse 5. The Lord is like an enemy. Oh, my gosh. You certainly don't want this guy as your, as your opponent. The Lord's like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all her palaces and destroyed all her strongholds. He has multiplied mourning and lamentation for the daughter of Judah. He has laid waste his dwelling like a garden. He has destroyed his place of meeting. Yeah, that was where the the temple was. It wasn't just a place for the presence of God to dwell, he got everywhere, but it was a place to meet the Lord. The Lord has made Zion forget her appointed festivals and her Sabbaths. Now that's an interesting thought. In his fierce anger, he has spurned both king and priest. He has rejected his altar and abandoned his sanctuary. He has given the walls of her palaces into the hands of the enemy. They have raised a shout in the house of the Lord, as on a day of an appointed festival. So the Lord has become an enemy. There is something that has occurred that was once we had a redeemer. At one stage, we had a guide. At one stage, we had a, a, a provider. We had a savior. We had a lawgiver. We had all of these things which we attribute to God, particularly uh, in in our other sacred festivals. Okay? Once we get into the into the Jewish calendar, we see some beautiful aspects of God. Uh, he is the Savior. He's the Redeemer. He's the Giver. He's the Provider. He's the Sustainer. He fights all our battles. Now, all of a sudden, he's an enemy. And uh, you have real deep thinking as you're sitting around the ruins of the temple. God has become an enemy. He has rejected his altar. How did that happen? Okay, and he's rejected his sanctuary. Now, um, for those that don't know, okay, um, I'm an Anglican. And, uh, and so when we worship, we have a tendency to worship on Sundays, though we worship all the time during the week. And um, there's parts of the service where I'm standing around the altar of the Lord and I'm standing there with my brothers and sisters. Our hands are raised and we're just worshiping. We're singing holy, 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 which is reflected from Isaiah, from Revelation. And all I can think about when I'm doing that is that, oh, my gosh, there are people all over the world standing around the altars of God, praising the Lord and sending their their prayers. And I just get enraptured by that very thought that the altars of the Lord are being attended by his priests and that his people are gathering and they are sending their prayers. And it's very special. And the altar in Jerusalem is incredibly special. There's going to be any altars around. Okay, that one was going to be the big one. Um, and yet, it's rejected by God. He's rejected his altar. He's rejected his sanctuary. Why? And in doing so, when we don't have the presence of God there and we don't have people coming, there's no feasts and Sabbaths being observed. Okay? Now, they are. They are restarted in Babylon. The Sabbath was observed in Babylon. Festivals were observed in Babylon. Prayer three times a day is observed in Babylon. Okay. But the keeping of festivals and the keeping of Sabbaths has not saved the temple. They are a result of the presence of God. When God is present, Sabbaths are observed, Festivals are observed, and God is not present. Sabbaths are not observed, and festivals are not observed. And that's where you begin to see your beginning shift in theological shift. If we don't have a temple and we don't have the presence of God, what can we do? And suddenly they went, actually, let's remember he's everywhere. We can continue to worship the Lord. We can continue to observe his Torah we can continue to uh, observe Sabbaths and festivals. Not only that, we can figure out what we did wrong when we actually physically had a temple. And so the, the, the shift that you see in Babylon is a, is a, is a, is a fundamental shift. Um, and so on one hand, tonight, the Jewish people are mourning the destruction of the temple, but they are not looking back. Okay. They're not pointing fingers and saying their sin destroyed the temple. Isn't that terrible? What a crazy generation that was. We certainly wouldn't do that. Okay. What they're doing is they're, is they're saying they have a they have a, a midrash that says this. Um, the generation that doesn't build the temple is the generation that destroyed the temple. What do they mean by that? That means they're they're not talking about the past, they're trying to talk about the present. They're trying to say that if we have the same behaviour that they did back then, the presence of God don't leave. So let's examine what we're doing right now, change our behaviour. So you think about the past, but you contemplate on the present so that you can change your future. And you're going to see that within the new community the temple of the community of Yeshua, where we have the presence of God within our community and our behavior and the way that we follow his commandment to love one another is either going to enhance the presence of God in that community or it's going to drive them away. And, uh, and it's not a past event. You don't point fingers at anybody else. You look at us as a community. And, uh, and you see that. I hope that we're beginning to see that uh, here. So we'll keep having a look at uh, at, at these these verses. Chapter 10, uh, uh, sorry, verse 10 of uh, chapter 2 of the second uh, poem. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have sprinkled dust on their heads and they put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. This is where you get the tradition of sitting on the ground. Hey, you've been reading Lamentations. It says sit on the ground, bang it, we will. Anyone who's sung the the song, uh, we lift our hands to the Lord, and then they don't lift their hands to the Lord, uh, usually stand there and go, why am I not lifting my hands? I just said I would. And so you're reading a book that says let's sit on the ground, so this is, however, during the next 25 hours, we start sitting on the ground, and then by tomorrow, uh, by tomorrow afternoon, people are back up on chairs. And they actually put tefillin on. They they don't wear wear, um, tefillin. They don't wear prayer, prayer shawls tomorrow. They will by the afternoon because they're beginning to see hope. And you will also see hope in the book of Lamentations. Okay. Verse 14 of the second chapter, chapter 2, 14, says, The visions of your prophets were false and worthless, They did not expose your sin to ward off your captivity. The prophecies they gave you were false and they were misleading. So what is the role of a prophet? There were prophets and these prophets we were not prophesying the truth. They were prophesying beautiful things in people's ears. They were prophesying how everything was going wonderful and how, um, you know, you were going to walk out your front door and you're going to meet the girl of your dreams. It was going to be fantastic. Okay. Um, but that wasn't true. What is the role of a prophet, according to this verse, to expose the sin of the people? Now, there are prophets in our community today, and there should be. Any prophecy is a gift of the spirit, and it should be alive and well in our community. <clears throat> However, has anybody ever been to church where a prophet stands up and suddenly accuses uh, the, the the pastor? Usually, not. Okay. Usually, they say all nice things. I had not heard many prophets inside churches, modern-day churches, describe uh, the sin of the people. Yet, that is their function. One of their functions is to make sure that the community behavior is not driving away the presence of the Lord. It is not to speak beautiful, sweet words which are false. That does not say that God does not give us beautiful, sweet words, he does. And all of you could probably give me some very good examples of the words of the Lord that have come and that have come to pass that have been indeed beautiful. And for those that are from Canada, uh, I remember this long trip across Canada we took with the 10 white trucks where amazing sorts of prophecies were coming to, to pass that had been prophesied months ahead of time. And it was a delight to see that what we were doing was, um, was part of God's plan. However, here <clears throat> we have to note That if this is Jeremiah speaking, okay, he is uh, chastising prophets for not doing their job and exposing the sin of the people. We are too much in the habit of only prophesying beautiful things. We should, if we have a word from the Lord, good or bad, we should say it. Chapter 3, okay, this is the the long, uh, long, poem where they have uh, three lines for each for each uh, letter Uh, what would be the question Um, do we have complete security and well-being because we believe in God would God ever do something bad to us and so we have a look at verses one to three I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of the Lord's wrath. He has driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. Indeed, he has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. So did Jeremiah do something wrong? Did he uh, prophesy falsely? Did he say beautiful words? to the people, no, he got thrown in the well because of it. He got, all kind of, he got chastised because he was only ever speaking the truth. And yet, bad things still happen to him. And so we have to acknowledge that just because we believe in the Lord, that doesn't mean that we're always going to have security and well-being. Okay? That's actually not true. And many of our brothers and sisters in uh, Africa, parts of Latin America, definitely Asia right now, Um, can all attest that they believe in God, that the power of the Holy Spirit is their defender and protector, and they are not doing well in terms of their security. In terms of their faith, they're doing great. Sometimes God does lead us into darkness. And when that happens, we have to make sure that our faith can handle it. Now, the beautiful thing about being as part of the body of the Messiah body of Christ this thing which we call the Ecclesia the church is that I don't get to do it by myself when it's time for me to walk in the valley of the shadow of darkness I'm not by myself if I if I can open my eyes I can see my brothers and sisters who walk beside me and I pray that that all of our job would be to notice those of us around us who are struggling and to walk with them okay so In verse 19 of chapter 3, we read, I remember my afflictions and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I remember well, and my soul is downcast. Yet I call to mind, and therefore I have hope, because the Lord's great love are not consumed, for his mercies never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Then we've sung these songs before, Steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. This comes from Lamentations, the book which describes the destruction of the temple. Here's a guy walking in the valley of darkness, and yet he can turn around and say, yes, I have hope. Yes, I acknowledge that the Lord is, is faithful. And I think it was a really good lesson for everybody, and it shows us that within this text there is always Always hope. Whenever things get dark, there is always a light to look for. Okay, in anything that is despair, there is always hope. Why? Because the Lord is faithful. Not me. Okay? The the prophet is is, is is taking a look, a hard look at Jerusalem. so we were not faithful. This is what got us into this mess. But the Lord is faithful. Both good and bad come from the Lord. And that is an important. Thing to grasp theologically. Okay? Too often in our modern day, we only think good comes from the Lord. But no, good and bad come from the Lord. And we can repent and we can return to the Lord. And this is highlighted in verse 37 of this chapter. It says, who can speak and have it happen if the Lord had not decreed it? It is not from the mouth of the Lord of the Most High. Is it not from the mouth of the Lord Most High that both calamities and good things come? Why should the living complain when punished for their sin? Let us examine our ways and test them. Let us return to the Lord. Let us lift our hearts and our hands to the God of heaven and say, we have sinned and rebelled. We have not forgiven. And so the word there is, uh, is, is you can repent can return to the lord and where does that movement come from it comes from us god does draw close yes but must also draw close to him you see that in verse 55 55 to 57 chapter 3 i called on your name lord from the depths of the pit i mean you were in a pretty dark place okay? you heard my pleas even when it was dark god hears do not close your ears to my cry. You come near when I called you, and you said, do not fear. And so good and bad can come from the Lord. But when you call, and, you, and, and the Lord can draw close. So there's a movement from, from, from both ways. And God even hears from darkness, which is actually uh, quite a good thing. In chapter 4, the uh, fourth uh, poem, which is the last of the acrostics. Uh, chapter five is slightly different. This compares the condition of the people before and after the destruction. So, before the destruction, the the poem says how valuable we, we were. We were a treasure. Uh, we were God God had considered us a prize. But outside the land, we're nothing but slaves. We were gold and we were valuable, but outside we we're just clay. Uh, we have absolutely no value. No one cares for us. But it continues to acknowledge that uh, it was the people's sin that drove uh, them away. The prophets and the priests were not being true. And yet the end of the poem is, uh, brings hope because in verse 22, the last sentence, it says that the punishment will end. It's not going to go on forever. Uh, and in, in, chapter 20, in chapter 5, which is... Um, has 22 sentences but they're not acrostic which means for some reason we don't do Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet and have a word that begins with those letters it just is 25 or uh, 22 uh, sentences long um, it says uh, the, the, the theme is exactly the same there is desolation but there was always hope for resta- restoration and the key verses Uh, that I want to look at are the last couple from 19. Chapter 5, verse 19. You, Lord, reign forever. So God is a king even uh, when things don't seem to be going well. The Lord reigns forever. Your throne endures from generation to generation. Why do you always forget us? Why do you forsake us for so long? Restore to us to yourself, Lord, that we can return and renew our days of old unless you have utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure there's a lot of power given to God God is a king and the question is do you have you forgotten us or well, can God forget and the answer is of course no God can't forget um, the beginning of the chapter says remember Lord what has happened can God remember does he forget memory as we've discussed in these Bibles that is before is not linked to forgetting who you are when you wake up in the morning or where you put your shorts. Memory is linked actually to action. If you forget the Lord, that means you have started to disobey his teaching. When you remember the Lord, you are remembering what he has taught and you're putting his words into practice. God himself remembers. And when God remembers, he acts. He remembered Noah, drained the flood. He remembered Rachel, opened up her womb. He remembered Israel, took them out of Egypt. So memory is linked to action. Here, they are again um, looking at the idea of, of memory and themselves, okay, as well. That uh, we will return because the word restore here shuv is the same root word for repent. So restoration and repentance go hand in hand, and it's all about and it's all in the context of behavior. And so, Jewish people carted away into Babylon, rethink the idea of the presence of God, no longer in a place, but everywhere, including captivity, including deepest, darkest Babylon. Can we remain faithful? Yes. What can we do? We can repent. And so that's what you see in the New Testament. First words of Jesus when he comes out of the desert, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right after he's done his his, uh, 40-day fast. And, um, and the bigger picture is not individual repentance, although that's there too. We've already got it in Yom Kippur. It's national repentance. So Tisha of reminds us that God disciplines us as individuals, but he also disciplines us as a church and as communities, and he disciplines us as nations. History can and it should be instructive. That is, on this day, okay, which is a day of tragedy, we remember that it is our sin that drove the presence of God away from his temple and his people. Okay? And so our behavior can also bring him close. And so how do you do that? You repent. You start by repentance. and But not in an individual sense, in a national sense. And you can actually see this also in... The Bible, looking at Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, okay, verse uh, 20. It says, While I was speaking and praying, now that's an interesting way to describe prayer, isn't it? I was speaking and then I was praying. Well, what's praying then, if not speaking? Prayer in Hebrew is, as you've said before, reflexive, something you do to yourself. Prayer isn't just talking to God, it's also listening and being influenced by him. You don't pray to God to influence him, you pray to God to get influenced by him. And so it's something that you do to yourself. So here we have Daniel speaking and praying. He's telling God what's going on, but he's also doing some listening there as well. He's confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and making my request to the Lord, my God, for his holy hill. So we're still talking about his holy mountain, even though we're nowhere near it, okay? We've been been destroyed. But here you have um, Daniel, who is being carted away into Babylon, and uh, he's engaging in prayer, and he's considering his own sin and the sin of his people. And in the book of Daniel, you do not get an angel of the Lord coming to talk to him and saying, Daniel, we really appreciate your prayers, but because you haven't got a sacrifice in the temple, you're going to hell. Okay? That's, that's not there. And so they've already begun to think, how do I get rid of sin without a temple? And, uh, and Daniel's already worked it out, and you, that's, and you even see it in the book of Acts. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, full of the Spirit, just delivered a great sermon, lots of miracles are happening, 3,000 people get baptized, and they say, what do we do? Uh, and in the book of Acts, he doesn't say, well, here I am in the temple, here's a perfect opportunity for me to tell you that sacrifices are a load of rubbish, and Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice, which is true. But he says, repent, because that was the, uh, the thing that they would learned, repent. Draw close to God, and the presence of God is going to be in your community. You won't believe what's going to happen when He's when He's present in your community. And once you're once you've modified your behavior and you're obeying the Lord and loving each other as He commanded, then the spirit uh, will be enhanced, um, which is a absolutely wonderful thing. So, <clears throat> what else does repentance bring? Repentance brings hope and expectation for the future. So God had prophesied in Deuteronomy as we've been studying that should the people fall into idolatry, that God was going to exile them. Well, lo and behold, God had been true to his word, and that had exactly happened, and the people had been taken out uh, of of the land. But if God had been true to that, what else was God going to be true to? Just similarly in the book of uh, Deuteronomy, Chapter 4, verse 29, we read it a couple of months ago. If you seek the Lord with all your heart, you will find him. And so there was a promise and a hope. Sin could drive away God's presence. Not only that, it would drive the people of Israel away from the land. But repentance could also draw him close. A heart that searched for God would find him the two would join together again and they would be close which is absolutely beautiful and they began to think of that as a personal level so Daniel prays my sin what sin has Daniel done no idea but he considers himself to be a sinner but he also joins in the nation and so there was an element of being part of something bigger And national repentance would bring the Redeemer. And so you see uh, verses like Isaiah, chapter 59, verse 20, which says, the Redeemer will come to Zion. Great. Sentence doesn't finish. The Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent. And so there was this concept that repentance would bring about a Redeemer. And that thinking is well developed in the second temple period. So that by, t- by the time you get to John the Baptist, John the Baptist comes out of the desert, or he's in the desert, and he's calling people to repent in the national sense. Yes, they're doing it as individuals, absolutely. Individual guys walking into the, into the water, individual guys choosing to change their behavior but they're doing it as part of a, of a people and they're getting the, the, the people excited uh, for the Messiah. And so he's preparing the way uh, of the Redeemer out there in the, in the desert. So repentance ends up becoming not just a one-off event, uh, you know, like the sinner's prayer. Let's say the sinner's prayer and then I've become a believer. Jesus is Lord and I'll go out and commit as many sins as I like because I'm all saved now. You know, I've got myself a get-out-of-jail-free card. Uh-uh. In even in Greek, okay, thank the Lord that our New testament's written in Greek. To repent in Greek is a repent and keep on repenting. It's in it's in the present, okay, or present continuous. It's a very special uh uh way of describing a verb. We don't always have it as that easily in um in uh, in English. Although you can say things like I am walking, which is sort of kind of a present continuous. But you repent and you keep on repenting, not just a one-off event. And repentance gives you a hope for the future, not just individual, but in terms of a nation. And so even the very last words in Revelation 22, where the Messiah himself says, repent. Why? Because behold, I'm coming quickly. Okay, so there's this idea of, Be in an an attitude of repentance because the Redeemer is coming. And so uh, today is uh, Tisha B'Av, the day of fasting and prayer. And uh, today's uh, thinking for Jewish people is they are thinking about not just the judgment of God, but also the mercy of God. So they're holding both things together, just like Lamentations does. We look at his judgment. He's true to his word because of our sin and our false prophets. And so um, we look at our behaviour and our desire for repentance and zeal, trusting that God's mercy, because he's faithful, will send a redeemer. And um, the, uh, the, the, James, the book of Epistle of James says that the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and is very effective. And so prayer becomes a very effective tool for Jewish people to, to change their behavior. It's a part of the way we change our behavior. It's not just, I'm going to wake up today and I'm just going to be a good guy. Just going to do it. Okay? Good luck. Go for it. I suggest wake up and pray. Wake up and pray, listen to the Lord, and, uh, and get influenced by God to how to change our behavior. And and so do we do this individually? Yes. But we also do it as a community. And we see that community prayer, which is uh, uh, linked into this community behaviour, which drove away the spirit of God, community prayer and community behaviour can enhance the presence of God. And you can see it in the way Yeshua, Jesus, teaches his disciples to pray. How does the Lord's Prayer start? Does it start... My father, who is in heaven. No, it's our father. It's a community. It's about us. Why? Because the temple, everything that occurred in the temple, is now being done in the Messiah and in the community of the Messiah. The presence of God was in the temple. The presence of God is now in the temple of the community of the Messiah. And the behavior that the people had around the temple drove God's presence away. The, 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 the behavior of the community of believers today can drive away the presence of God. And you can see it. How many churches do we like to poke fingers at because they have born liberal, they've sold the gospel. We don't even know what gospel they're preaching. And when you go there, there's no feeling of the spirit. He's departed. It's now an empty shell. What empty chairs too, but it's also empty. And so we hey see. Oh. Yeah,
0: I'm sorry to interrupt. Um, in the chats, Aaron has a very good que- he has a very good um, observation and question.
1: Yes. Okay, Aaron. Oh, yeah. Thank you for, for drawing that out. So, Aaron, um, Gan, great name by the way. Aaron uh, says, uh, are, "Am I saying that people can be guilty of national sin by being part of a nation, as in the case study of Daniel?" Answer: Yes. You're part of the nation. The nation rebels and so the good and the bad all suffer the exact same punishment okay uncleanness is transmitted so the uncleanness of the community infects even the people who were good hopefully it's going to be more like the other way around but
0: but, um, yeah, but the, the, it's the second half of, what, of his observation. Yes. Like, this
1: is very so how does this relate to Jesus being part of the Jewish people and not yet being guilty of any sin? Whoa. Okay. So what do we see Jesus doing when he comes out the desert and meets his cousin John? He gets baptized.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, why is he being baptized? The guy has not no sin, right? And you go, hang on. Okay. It's, yes, it's true. On one hand, Absolutely. Yeshua has no individual personal sin, but he is part of the nation. He is identifying with his people, Israel. He is saying, we are going to expect the Redeemer. And the way we do it is we repent as a nation. I am going to do that too. Although he personally isn't repenting for an individual thing, but he's joining in the national uh, framework of his people. So he also gets baptized. And not only that, I mean, John the Baptist looked at him and said, "Dude, I should be being baptized by you. What are you doing?" And and this is the obviously the Aussie version. He says, "Listen, cause it's quite all right. We're doing this because of righteousness sake. This is all righteousness. This is part of the national movement as we're expecting the Messiah. We're fulfilling prophets. We're doing all kinds of things, and he is identifying as part of the house of Israel. And uh, and but he's not doing it because of, of sin. Okay, his, his personal one." I okay. hope that helps Aaron okay so Yeshua has to do it okay, because he is part of the Jewish people okay so uh, we need to the things we can learn from Tisha B'Av it is not a biblical festival that is true however it seems to be part of the biblical framework there are things that we can learn from this this is we have decentralized the religion God yes is in heaven, but is also here with us. The things that were occurring in the temple are now occurring within the people of the Messiah, and uh, and so and the behavior of the people could drive the presence of God away, or they could enhance the presence of God and their light to the nations. So, brothers, and sisters, you and I got a big task ahead. We have the presence of God in our midst. No one here wants to drive Him away. We all want more spirit. We want more presence. We want more signs and wonders. We want more prophecies. We want more of God. And so how do we do that? We engage in prayer on a corporate level, not just individual, but let me also say, I'm not saying don't pray as an individual. I'm not saying don't read your Bible as an individual. I'm not saying don't sing to the Lord as an individual. I'm not saying love the Lord because He's very close to you. But don't, as Paul says to Timothy, don't give up the practice of meeting with the brothers. In fact, the uh, one of the first uh, commands that you find in, in the um, the book of the Didache, that's the uh,
3: uh, uh, the teachings. The ethics of, of the Father. Sorry, the Didache. The ethics of the fathers.
1: Correct. So we're looking at the early church, the early Jewish believers, mm-hmm. and and the, one of the things is they say. Every day, seek the company of the saints. So go to work, yes. Hang out with your pagan buddies, yes. But make sure that at some point you find the brothers. You need each other. I need you, you need me. We can pray, our Father, forgive our sins as we forgive others who sin against us. We're all very community. There is individual, absolutely. but. It's also got to do with uh, the community. You see that uh, highlighted in in this festival right now. In the Lord's Prayer, community identity is in behaviour, repentance and forgiveness. They're all interlinked, just like the Jewish people are looking at right now. Today they're trying to examine their identity as in behaviour and corporate repentance and corporate forgiveness. Therefore, I think that you and I should take seriously national days of prayer. You know, when someone says, you know, we should pray uh, today. You shouldn't. You shouldn't say, we shouldn't spurn those things and say, oh, you know, no, I can pray to God whenever I feel like it. No, get together as a, as a country. Get together as a community. Get together as a group. Uh, I know most of us have national prayer houses, okay? Um, so, you know, log on to their websites. Find out when they're doing prayers. Join in. Okay. Um, we shouldn't point fingers at any, at, at, at uh, anybody else. Oh, it's you know, you're you're a bad sinner and you don't preach very well and blah blah blah. You know, don't say those kinds of things. Humble ourselves. Acknowledge that our sin chases away the presence of God. Fix up our our communities. Start as couples. Start as families. Start as uh, as communities. Start as churches. And, um, and a community that's behaving like that, it's unstoppable. Okay? As uh, Yeshua says, you know, the gates of hell can't stop my kingdom. You know, when, when my kingdom is behaving, listening to my voice and, uh, and you know, following the commands of God, of, of God, love one another and uh, don't grieve the Holy Spirit, then there'll be more of the Holy Spirit. There's going to be more signs of love, more power, and the devil can't stop it. The guy couldn't stop the gospel going around the world, so he's not that strong. Okay? Um, he's strong, hurting some of the brothers and sisters, but he's not un- unbeatable. He's already been uh, beaten. And so I think that Tishra of uh, is, a, is, a, is a, um, an event that we can learn a lot from. We shouldn't ignore it. That doesn't mean we fall in love with the temple because modern Jews do. Um, Jesus had a high appreciation of the temple. Ever since his uh, 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 presentation in the temple with Simeon and Anna, he made annual pilgrimages with his family and then later his disciples. He wept over the city. He called the the city the same as the prophets Jeremiah and Ozark, a house of prayer for all nations. And in zeal for his father's house, he drove out the money changers. So Jesus had a high appreciation. That meant that his disciples did. Where do we see the disciples spending their time in the beginning of the book of Acts? Hanging out in the temple. They didn't immediately shun it. The temple had lots to teach the community. It had lots to teach the world. Uh, And it's gone now, so we can learn from it. And as a community, we can take everything that we uh, can from the experience of the temple on the planet and put it into our own practice today as, um, as, as followers of the Messiah. Okay. Uh, Bethany Cohen says, can you expound on this idea of having measures of the Spirit? Okay. Um, in the book of Acts, we studied uh, this. Um, um, at the beginning of book of Acts, chapter one, uh, Jesus tells his disciples, wait in Jerusalem and you'll get baptized in the Spirit. And you go, oh, that's interesting. Um, haven't they already got the spirit? And that's because in, in, in John chapter twenty, they already got it. Mm-hmm. Because Yeshua rose from the dead, walked into a room, and he said, "Receive the Holy Spirit." So they already yeah. had it. So what are they waiting on in Acts? Think uh, Hebrew, okay? Think Jewish, okay? Um, if someone said, "Get baptized," what would be running through your brain? Obviously, a mikvah. That's what, that's what that's that meant. What that meant. How often did you go to the mikvah? Well, anytime you liked, really. Okay? You yeah. could be baptized every day. And so being baptized in the Spirit isn't a one-off event. Okay? It's something that can happen every day. In fact, you should desire it. You want to be full of the Spirit every day. And so you see in the book of Acts, many times when it says, Paul suddenly full of the Holy Spirit. I mean, he wasn't before. He was, but he got an extra bit. And so you have this, uh, this idea that the Holy Spirit can continually come upon the people, filling them up, overflowing, head to toe. When you got baptized, you literally went under the water. You covered every bit of you. And that's what we want the Holy Spirit to be like in our lives. We want, him, we want to be covered head to toe by this guy. Right? We want every bit of us around. And, uh, and I think that's a, um, well, actually a, a blessing because it's not just a blessing for me. It's a blessing for anybody around me. Okay, that would, would experience what's going on in the spirit. Plus, just to link it back to behavior, because everything goes back to behavior, not, not works righteousness. Don't, don't put that in my mouth. The fruit of the spirit is what? Love, joy, no. peace, self-control. Things you can see. Not just signs and wonders. Okay? The fruit of the spirit is a behavior. Love is a behavior. Peace is a behavior. Self-control is a behavior.
2: Okay.
1: Patience is a behavior. There's one of the fruits of the Spirit. Um, sorely lacking in this country, unfortunately. Um, may there be more of it. Okay. All right. Um, would you, uh, Bethany also ask? would you say that, that daily repentance would give us a greater measure of the Holy Spirit? Well, um, uh, I certainly wouldn't say no. <laughs> let's, let's just say that uh, never let anyone say don't repent uh, especially when the Messiah says repent and so I think one of the treasures that we have in our prayer life as brothers and sisters is that we can always come before it and say Lord I know I didn't live up to your expectations I'm sorry don't leave me and the thing is he won't there are so many promises that we find not only in Lamentations okay where it says God will draw close Okay? but in, in many of the prophets and in Deuteronomy that if you seek the Lord you will find him If you get want to draw close to him he will draw close to you and uh, and so I think those are all all good things um, but let's let's start with the first words of Jesus but um, especially as a uh, as we're looking at today we're the temple of God We have the Holy Spirit we do not want him to leave our community in fact we want more of we want an enhanced spirit. We want an enhanced presence of God. Uh, and all of that will give honor and glory to God because it's going to reflect on his character. It's going to reflect on his name. Uh, it'll fight back the devil. Um, it's going to be a blessing for us. Um, and, uh, yeah, okay. i just noticed that it's now 10 to 9. Uh, well done for, for struggling with me on that one.
2: Any right, questions the day? I'm yeah.
1: happy to talk
3: a bit more. All right, I just want to make a contribution on the, the last um, question that you just dealt with. Um, yes, it's very important for us to repent, but uh, we should keep in mind not to lose the assurance of salvation. Um, not repenting in the sense of that we are not anymore in the kingdom, yeah. uh, you know, yeah, that we should still have the assurance of salvation, just like in the prayers of Yeshua, you say, Our Father. Well, at the end, he says, "Forgive us of our trespasses." But yet, he was still, you know, our yep. trespasses has to forgive those who trespass against us. So, so, so the guy's is
1: already them. sinning, and he's still talking yep. to God. So that that's a good thing yep. to know. And also, look at King David. What has King David done? He's he's committed yep. murder. Don't take your yep. holy spirit from me. Okay. So yep. so there is there is yep. in, in that in that tension that you find in the Bible. There's those that that the sin of the people drove the presence of God away. Now, it wasn't just I did one thing wrong and God ran away. This was a long process, yeah, a yeah. long process of concerted idolatry, of deliberate burning children to Molech, of, you know, just nasty stuff, right? Um, it, was, it was not just a one-off event. Um,
2: yeah.
1: yeah.
2: Aaron, can I just share yeah. one Yes, brother. Um, There's a verse in Lamentations 1.12 that I find really quite profound because it's about the darkness of sin and it resonates with what Jesus experienced on the cross. So I'll just read and see if you can see this connection. It says, Is it nothing to you or you who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted, on the day of his fierce anger.
1: Mm, Interesting, especially when that's connected to the anger of the cloud on Jerusalem. Yeah,
2: Yeah, it's an interesting thought to take away. This prophecy resonates with Jesus' experience on the cross in in a way that's really quite profound. But I just, I won't say any more. Yeah, no, that was great, man.
3: That was good.
2: Yeah.
3: All right. Okay, also just to, Emphasize something you already said earlier on um, about um, how we view um, salvation. You know, more traditionally in the Christian church, we view salvation as more as individualistic thing, yeah. and um, in, in in modern day Israel or in mainstream Judaism, they view it more as a nationalistic thing. Yeah, um, yeah even Paul emphasizing it, saying that an all Israel will be saved. You know, they, they they see it in that way, but it's healthy to have the portion of the two together to live a proper life.
1: Yep, that's right. The, the, you're right, Samson. They, 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 simply, they blend together. There is a sense yeah. of individual salvation. There's also a sense of community salvation. That time. As Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Salvation is yeah. an event and a process. There is that time where you met the Lord, there is that time where you said, you know what, God, you are my king. Jesus, you are my Messiah. I accept your sacrifice you know all those kinds of things, sinners' prayers, blah, blah, blah. But then, it doesn't leave it there. You work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Along comes the stumbling. Along comes us getting better. Along comes of us making mistakes but trying better. And all of us are going to say, I hope. That we're better followers of the Messiah now than we were ten years ago, right? You know that. Yeah.
0: You know, yeah.
1: Today, I'm not perfect. Haven't got it all right, but I'm, I'm doing it a bit better than I was ten years ago. And ten years from now, Lord Taring, I'm hopefully going to be doing a bit better. And um, that will not only make you know my family happy, but it will make the Lord happy. Very much. Yeah. yeah. So Yvonne uh, has, a, has a, a hand raise, to, wants to say something?
0: Yeah, I did. Actually, um, you know how history is circular, cyclical, and now we see that in, 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 in the Bible. My question is at the end of the book of Revelation, um, when the two witnesses, and of course, you know, it's so cryptic, so exactly, uh, there's a lot of stuff that is just hard to understand still. Um, it says how those two witnesses will lie in the streets of the great city, which is where the Lord was crucified, Sodom and Egypt. And then it goes into chapter 18, uh, verse 21. Babylon the great will be thrown down the great city. Mm-hmm. You hear Babylon being a system. You hear it being actually something, you know, geographically. Could Babylon, again, ask this whole process with Jeremiah with you know the whole situation that happened uh, with their deportation and, and the destruction, could that again come back to the idea of Babylon as the great city where they were uh, killed being Jerusalem and having the hand of the Lord again uh, upon them
1: are you talking prophetically you mean
0: no um, not real. I mean, I'm not sure what could that be because it says Babylon, the great city, and yeah. then it's that's where they were killed, where, where Jesus was crucified. So the location yeah. of Babylon is the great city. Babylon will be judged. So how does that? I mean, I'm just trying to piece that together. Okay.
1: Um, first of all, I don't know the answer to everything, however, uh, which is good. Praise the Lord. Um, the beginnings and ends, as, as mentioned before, often occur in the, in the same way. And so Nebuchadnezzar is the guy who destroys the temple. Why is he allowed to destroy the temple? Why is this Babylonian allowed to come out of all nations to come and destroy the presence of God? Well, the rabbis can't.
0: It's the, I, no. they,
1: they, they have to have him somehow linked to the original creator of the temple, which is, of course, Solomon. And so they say Solomon, you know, one of his many wives, one of them was a Babylonian princess. And so, bang, you know, Nebuchadnezzar ends up being a descendant of King Solomon, right? And so the, the guy who builds it is also the guy who destroys it. And so Babylon and Jerusalem are linked. And, uh, and okay, they're, 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 they're linked by empires. There was an empire that was meant to be a lie to the nations and there was this empire that was a, a destroyer of nations. Uh, there is a, they're, they're linked in terms of spirituality. One is uh, the, the, the kingdom of heaven and the other one is the kingdom of darkness. Um, they're linked by freedom and slavery. They're linked by lots of different, uh, different things. And they're also linked because they're essentially almost the same family. Right? And so um, uh, what do they say? What is the, one of the rabbinical sayings about Jerusalem? There are seven gates to hell and six of them are in Jerusalem. Jerusalem <laughs> is at the same time the city of God right the same time the, the city that held the presence of God the best of the best of the best and at the same time the worst of the worst of the worst because our sins were just worse and to be honest if we're honest and we should be is true for us as followers of the Messiah we're, we're in the image of God. We are the Messiah's representative, Christ's ambassadors, as uh, Paul likes to say. We are the representative of Yeshua in this So when we sin, it's worse than when the pagans sin. Okay, the pagan guy, he can go and embezzle money and, you know, rip his boss off and sleep with the secretary, but we're not allowed to, okay, because it, it, it reflects very poorly on our master. And so there is some relationship there between Babylon of the past, Babylon of the future, most definitely Babylon of the present.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the whole like concept of the spiritual idol- you know, idolatry is as as you know, yeah. you know Hosea and Gomer and and, and yeah. uh, the impurity of the wife. Yeah, very interesting. Thank you.
1: Pleasure. All right guys, thank you very much for a good study. And uh, tomorrow I uh, no, not tomorrow Next week, we will continue on. Uh, we're up to chapter 14 of, of Deuteronomy, yep. Okay, of, the, of uh, struggling with the last words of Moses, not struggling, wrestling with all the concepts <laughs> that are found in the last words of Moses. And last week, we got to kill everyone that, that was a pagan, but you know, whole villages and stuff. So um, that was uh, really kind of cool. Okay, so guys, very much enjoyed it. And I uh, hope to see you, um, or most of you, Uh, next week. Shabbat Shalom for those that are uh, looking forward to the Sabbath. Hope you all are. Uh, For those that are fasting, if any of you are, then may you have a a happy fast. No, what did I say? An easy fast. Easy fast. fast. Not a happy one. You're not supposed to be happy. (laughs) Yeah. Our our brothers and sisters are busy studying the Bible. They're busy looking at themselves and back. So we should pray for them. We should pray and we'll do it right now, that the Lord would meet them because that's what they want. They're wanting to change their behavior so that they can meet the Lord. So let's let's pray. Uh, So Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you that your word is true and you've been faithful to be be true uh, with your punishments as well as your blessings. And we look forward to the hope and, and, and the coming Redeemer again. Uh, we do pray for your people, Israel. We pray, Lord, that, uh, that they will indeed seek your face and that you will be true to your word. And uh, for those that seek you with all their heart uh, tonight will indeed find you. So mm-hmm. we pray, Lord, through dreams and visions, through your very holy word, through your sacred history, uh, through friends, uh, whatever happens, pray, Lord, you will reveal yourself to your people and uh, you will glorify your name amongst your people again. Uh, Shua. Amen.
3: Amen. Amen. All right. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom, everyone.
0: Okay.
3: Yeah. Shalom. All right. Lala Thank too. you so much. Thank
0: you. Thank
1: you. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.